Film is lit. Film is lit. Film is lit. Film is lit. One more. There's no way. I'm not doing it. I'm out. Scaredy cat. All right, whatever. Bye. Film is lit. Oh! A wedgie. The film is lit. Monster gives wedgies. Welcome to Film is Lit. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the self-appointed film expert. My name is Laura, she, her, and I am the self-appointed literature expert. And Mama's drinking right now. Oh, you know Laura's drinking when she brings out the Coach Coach Steve Steve. impression for Big Mouth, um, a show everyone watches, so... That should be a relatable joke. Everyone should watch it. Yeah. Season five just dropped. Today on the, well, we're on season six. Welcome to season six. Yeah. We came out hot last week with our episode on Dune 2021 with special guest, Dr. Sean Flory. Go listen to that if you haven't already. And today on the pod, we are covering not one, but two films based on The Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden. That's right. We are covering Candyman. (laughs) The Candyman can. Yes, we're covering Candyman, the 1992 original and the 2021 sequel. So many people are calling this a revival, a reboot. A remake. A spiritual sequel. It is none of those things. This movie is a direct sequel to the original Candyman. Uh, We're not going to be covering the original Candyman sequels. There's two sequels. We're uh, we're not going to be covering that. We're just doing the OG and then the new one, which is a sequel to the first one. There are key plot points that pop into the 2021 movie that we could not have. Yes. Unless... The 1992 film had come out. And you can watch the new movie without having seen the original, but watching the original enhances the new movie tenfold. Absolutely. In fact, we both listened to an episode of a podcast that covers this piece, actually on our way to our engagement shoot. Uh We just had our photo shoot. And there was a key spoiler that was not called out before it was shared. That's from... The previous movie. Yeah, leading into the new movie. Leading into the new movie. So I just want to stress that it's a good thing to watch the first one before you watch the second. And before we get into our episode, we should say this at the top of every episode, but this is a spoilers podcast. So we're going to be spoiling everything in the book, everything in the original movie, and everything in the new movie. Spoilers, full spoilers. So if you're deciding whether or not you want to watch the movies, what would you say? Yes, you would recommend them? Absolutely. And you would yeah. recommend the short story by Clive Barker, correct? Yeah, I, I personally really enjoyed it. Awesome. So yeah. Okay, so you heard it here first. If you don't want anything spoiled, you've been warned. Yeah. So go and read and watch those things. Yes. All right, before we get into the analysis, any announcements up top? We've I've been wanting to start doing this little announcements corner before we get into the main episode. So. Yeah. What do we got? So next week, we've got Dune Part 2, but technically it's Dune Part 4? 3. Since we've covered... Well, we've do covered... We two episodes, the... We covered the 84 movie, and then mm-hmm. we've covered the new movie once. Okay. Sean. So Part 3. Right. So, yeah. Part 3. 
Part 3 is coming up. Yeah, my brother will be on that episode, and we're talking about the sequel that was just greenlit. So, yeah, we're going to have mm-hmm. a discussion there. That's going to be fun. After that, we get into Christmas season. That's right, Thanksgiving just passed, so we're getting into the thick of the holiday, j- jolliday <laughs> spirits. We're going to be covering The Green Knight with returning guest Ryan Burns, and then also... We're going to be covering the Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm after so that, excited for that. It's with my favorite special guest, movie. Sean. So excited about Beck, that. Beck, different Sean. Yes. I just wanted to clarify yeah, for not, our listeners. Not, not, yes. Sean Beck will be the guest. <laughs> oh, please follow, subscribe if you want to. Also, I haven't plugged my Letterboxd in a while. Letterboxd mm-hmm. is a great site. It's Facebook, but for movie reviews. I think it is the only non-toxic social media platform yeah Um, it's just a a place where you can review movies so every movie we cover on this podcast i also review on there and i link to episodes yeah my handle is danny g reviews go follow if you're interested i won't give you my handle because all i do is shit on movies that i hate yeah laura uses letterbox for a place of hate (laughs) (laughs) i just said that letterbox is non-toxic but when laura's on there watch out all right (laughs) Let's get into the thick of it. Laura, kick us off. Well, I don't have too much to say up front about my journey because I had never read nor watched either film. In fact, we've touched on this a little bit in previous episodes, but I have not been a horror fan historically. Yeah. I'm more recently getting into more elevated horror. I've been getting into, I guess I'm I'm starting to draw a line of where my horror threshold begins and ends. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little bit concerned going into the first movie that I was going to be, it's, I guess this movie was pitched to me as a little bit more of a slasher than I think it really is. Cause it's, right. it's a real thinker. Yeah. <laughs> it does have a lot of violence and it's pretty grotesque. But like I've talked about before, I feel like I have a better, I have a higher threshold when the violence has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a lot of purpose in the violence in Candyman. When I saw the first one, it's definitely creepy, but I really enjoyed being challenged by a lot of the themes that are discussed. And then when we went into the second one, I was pumped because I love the cast. Yeah. Yahya, Abdil Mateen II, Tiona Paris, who's in If Bill Street Could Talk, as well as... Coleman Domingo, who Danny met, I think we might have mentioned yep, that on the podcast. Met him in person, he's, absolute gentleman. He's killed every single role. He's, he's also in If Beale Street Could Talk. He does an amazing job in that. Vanessa Williams, who was in the original, which you yeah, didn't know about. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that she was coming back for this. Again, full spoilers, she's in it. I was... Produced by Jordan Peele. Produced by Jordan Peele, and he also contributed to the screenplay, along with Wynne Rosenfeld and Nia DaCosta, who directed the movie, the 2021 movie. Yeah, female director, which is also a plus. <laughs> there's a great there's a great interview with her in Variety, I think I read. If I read an interview, it's probably from Variety. And it's about how her and Jordan Peele had a great relationship on set and how excited she was when she was auditioned to direct this and the ideas that she pitched to him. It'd be a real thrill, I can imagine, working with Jordan Peele. And if he's interested in your storyline, it's probably going to nail it. So anyway, I guess back to my own journey. I had read a lot about it. I was very excited. I came out of it in awe. And I actually came out 
with a lot of confusion as well. It's a very, it's, it's an extremely layered cake of themes and content and fantastic discussions. So I'm actually really excited by how much this movie challenged me. And then again, as far as The Forbidden, I had never read any of Clive Barker's writing, but I was really intrigued by the story. There's a lot of themes that, again, if I am introduced to horror with a psychological theme behind it, I get really, really, really interested. Yeah. And so that's very much The Forbidden, even though it's only about 20, is it even 20 pages? It's, 30, it's 38 in the edition okay. we have. Yeah. yeah. So, and I don't think we mentioned that. That came out in 1984. Those short stories were published. Yes. And yeah, the short stories are the Books of Blood. He is a collection of six or seven volumes. volumes. Yeah. And yeah, it's in volume five of Books of Blood. Yeah, so I overall had a fantastic time studying for this episode, and I learned a lot. So thank you to everybody who was involved in the creation of these pieces. And me for suggesting it in yeah. the first place. Yes, yeah, you did. All right, take all the credit. <laughs> yeah. I'm the one who said that we should watch the second movie, though, because we were only going to originally cover the first. That's true. And then as soon as I saw the second one, I was like, okay, okay, number two. Yeah. Let's dive in. Yeah, so for me, I hadn't seen the original Candyman until this summer when I was prepping for the new movie. I yeah. was really interested in it. I'm a huge fan of Yahya Abdul-Mateen II as well. He killed it in Watchmen, one of our favorite yeah. limited series ever. So yeah. yeah, I was pumped for that and yeah, loved Tiana Paris and the whole cast seemed super solid. The cinematography seemed slick and yeah. it just seemed intense in a movie that I would love. So in preparation, I'm like, I should watch the original, not knowing how closely it would lead into the new movie. Because again, all the marketing, all the reviewers, everyone, even the cast, I mean, they were saying that this new movie was a reboot and it just isn't. Mm -hmm. It's a direct sequel. So we'll get into that. So I watched the original movie last summer, really enjoyed it. I too was slightly confused. We'll, we'll get into it, but yeah, it's a thinker, a thinking man's horror film. It very much is metaphorical and invites discussion. And that's kind of explains how it's a cult movie. Cause when it was released, mm. it didn't get a huge box office. It People were saying they're confused. It was slow. It, they were expecting a slasher, just like yeah. how you were. But instead, it's a very meditative, macabre is a better word. It, it, it's not scary, but it is very macabre and, and spooky. And then I went to see the new movie two days later with my friend Dan, uh, Dan Porsche. Shout out. <laughs> Dan number two, as we Yeah, We <laughs> call it Dan number two. Long story. Yeah. Uh, we used to work together. Well, you're, no, you're number one to yes. me, so. Hey, number one. Hey, number two. <laughs> Scrubs reference. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah, went to go see the new movie opening weekend. It was funny. History repeats itself. This new movie also was divisive and getting mixed reviews. Some people loved it, some people hated it. I was seeing people right in the middle. I had no idea what to expect mm -hmm. with that variety of reviews mm -hmm. out there. I think the new movie has some pacing issues and I normally think when it comes to pacing, things are too long. That's normally my critique, but Same. this has the opposite problem. I rarely do I ever think a movie is too short. Dune. 2021. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Candyman. And Candyman. 2021. <laughs> uh, rarely do I ever have that criticism, but 
the new movie is simply too short for, for it to resonate, fully resonate for me. We'll get to that, but I still really loved it and rewatching it. It was such an easy rewatch. It's yeah. it's a very entertaining movie. It's only 90 minutes. Right. Is that correct? With yeah. credits. With credits. So when the credits are like 10 minutes. So That's yeah. true. They do a really cool move with the credits. There's yeah. not an end credit scene, but the art that they integrate is really, really, really cool. Right. So. so like the new movie, read volume five of Books of Blood. I have the same critique of the new movie that I do of The Forbidden, too short. I wanted to expand, especially the ending. I wanted more of the community coming out in that cult-like fashion. Yeah, so. I would say, I guess we can get a little bit into analysis right now. I would say that's almost the function of flash fiction right. is to introduce a theme and then sort of pull back and leave your audience wanting more. I think there's a time and place for that. I really enjoyed that yeah. because it's asking such big questions that probably to, you know, fully build out the ideas, you would maybe have to write a book or a, a longer story. But I, I actually enjoyed the flash fiction structure of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my expectations were just incorrectly placed. I was wanting a more fuller story, and mm -hmm. this very much ends with leaving it up to your interpretation. And yeah. I just, I think I wanted more out of it. I don't think it personally is my cup of tea. But the story right after The Forbidden called The Madonna, that one is horrifying too and perverse. And that one's almost double the length of The mm -hmm. Forbidden. I think it's 77 pages. So yeah, uh, more than double. And that one, I think, is the perfect length because it's mm -hmm. just long enough for there to be a beginning, middle, and end and satisfying arcs, but just short enough where it doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah, I wonder, that would be an interesting discussion if you kind of dug into the art of flash fiction and its relationship to a good movie. That's kind of how Brokeback Mountain started. Yeah. It was a, it's, it's, I wouldn't even call it a short story. It's, and I, I don't even know if I'd call it flash fiction. It's just this really bare bones sort of flashes of ideas and concepts. I'm excited to cover Brokeback Mountain just because of where it started and how it turned into what it is. Yeah. But, but anyway, that's why I think this is really an interesting relationship between the short fiction, the first movie and the second movie. Cause there's just like, there's a lot of jumps that I think are really intentionally made. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, let's get into a quick synopsis of The Forbidden and then the changes that the 92 movie mm -hmm. made. Yeah, I can, I can summarize. Yeah, go ahead. The Forbidden is a story that covers this academic who's sort of chasing her dissertation. Her name is Helen, and she's looking for just, I think, like, like she's almost at her dissertation, but she's looking for a little bit more meat. And she's kind of studying the relationship between poverty and poorer areas of Liverpool, where the original story is set, and graffiti and street art. So she finds this housing project and decides to photograph it and interview a few people who live there. And in the course of this, she meets a mother who ends up sharing with her the legend of Candyman and... Her son ends up dead a few pages later. <laughs> yeah. 
Helen is so intrigued by this, and not only by the story, but also by this graffiti art that she finds in one of the tenements, which is very similar to the images that are used in both the first and the second movies of sort of this gaping hole, which has a face graffitied around it. So the hole kind of looks like a mouth. Mm -hmm. She's just drawn by this sort of inexplicable energy back to that housing project again and again. Like I said, the boy's murdered. She can't figure out why. And then she sort of ends up being another victim of Gandimum, <laughs> which I think is our, has turned into Danny and my way of dealing with not saying candy man around any mirrors. Yeah, we're two little weird gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why we're getting married. Don't mind us. All right. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the synopsis. Did I leave anything out? No, um, that's perfect. And yeah. that segues to the two big changes that the movie makes. So the movie takes the setting and transplants it from Liverpool, England to Cabrini Green, Chicago, which is a real place. I didn't know that it was yeah, real. I, I had was, never heard of it I thought either. it was made up. And yeah, yeah it, this story is steeped in real history. The city did put low-income housing in Cabrini Green and essentially cut it off and let the town rot so they could gentrify it years later, which the new movie deals more with gentrification and the old movie kind of more of the crime and poverty that's corroding Cabrini Green. So in both the short story and the movie, Candyman is a representation of the crime poverty that is literally metaphorically eroding away this community. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about the timeline of Cabrini Green because it was constructed in 1942. And so in the first movie, which ostensibly takes place in 1992, it's already been around for 50 years. It's been in a steady decline of neglect right. from the city. I think obviously the white politics of the city, it's been left for 50 years and you can feel that grime and that neglect when Helen comes across it the first time. And then again, flash forward, 1992 was 30 years ago. Yikes. That's, wait, what? 30 years ago. Yeah. Wait, so that's almost another, that's almost another 50 year gap yeah. from the time that we walk away from the first movie. So it's so interesting to watch that neglect even further drag right. that community into poverty. I don't know if it's a different kind of poverty, but I think that the newer movie addresses a lot of like the the politics that are going on today rather than what would have necessarily been like acceptable to talk right. about during 1992. Right. And the new movie especially hammers home the fact that history is repeating itself, that certain communities yeah, that cycle. are yeah. are in this loop and that's why at the end of the new movie, Coleman Domingo's character tries to resurrect Candyman because he's like, this legend is gone. People are not talking about this right. loop. We've been in this loop for so long. We now need an Avenger. We need like a vigilante who will yeah. come out and get vengeance for all these, you know, decades yeah. of We're, neglect. You're touching on so many yes. things that I want to talk about. So, yeah. yeah. But then let's go back to the changes the first movie made to the short story. So, okay. Change in location. The second big change is making Candyman a person of color. The short story doesn't flat out say that Candyman is white, but he says that he is a blue-lipped figure with whitish to yellowish transparent skin almost. Like, it's just a ghoul. Yeah, a ghoul. Is how, yeah, I read a lot of articles by Richard Newby from 
Yeah. The Hollywood Reporter, and that's how he describes it. It's just like a blue-lipped ghoul. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then by making Candyman black, then it opens the discussion of what Candyman truly represents and yeah. opens the doors to talk about race in all cities, but specifically Chicago and yeah. how the city has turned its back on this community, which mostly consists and of communities like this you, all right. over the city. Yeah. Exactly. So it opens America. up that door. Yeah for a completely new, additional discussion. Yeah. To go back to how I was left after the, watching the second movie, I was disoriented because I don't have a doctorate in any kind of analysis, but I feel like I'm good enough to spot like, okay, this is the major theme in a movie. But after Candyman 2021, I was sitting there just sort of stunned. There was so much that I felt like was conflicting. Yeah that I didn't quite know how to approach it. And so I had to do a lot of research, especially with the second film. This was a primarily black mast-headed team. And so even though I feel conflicted about some of the things that I was seeing, for example, Candyman's a black man and he's perpetuating violence against other black people. And I didn't know how to feel about that because a lot of the black people, especially in the first film who are murdered by Candyman, I didn't feel like there was any reason behind that. And right. I felt like that was a little bit of like, what is it, trauma porn? Kind of like that, like I didn't understand the reasoning behind it. So I was a little conflicted about seeing those images. But after doing a lot of research, like one of the things that I, I came across was this idea of like the inability to escape the projects. And like you were talking about that cycle that Coleman Domingo sort of puts on this unwilling martyr who's, Again, total spoilers, Yahya Abdul-Mateen, the second's character. And that was so eye-opening to me. And the fact that he he wants to perpetuate this legend, but and this is something that we should probably talk about in a different discussion so we don't get too far away from what we're talking about now, but he wants to perpetuate this legend for a very specific reason. And that's one of the things that I came to understand more after a lot of research is that specific reason is very important. It's not just his sort of like misunderstanding of what Candyman represents. He's doing something to use Candyman in a, you know, a, a specific way. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think you're touching on something important with the first film, how there's a slight disconnect mm. with yeah. Candyman's motivations because at times they don't make sense. We know what he represents. We've already said that he represents the crime and violence mm -hmm. and poverty in the community and how this community has been neglected. That's what Candyman represents. But why does he want to kill anyone who summons him? That's not right. really explained. And why kill people of like, color? Because, you know, surely... Seemingly innocent people. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, again, we understand the metaphor. It's just confused why he would ever want to harm anyone living in the community. Yeah. Like, the, the, the metaphor is a little hard to track when... He represents the violence, but he's also perpetuating violence. Yeah. Well, for I would just right. give an example to build this out a little bit. So, for example, Helen's best friend, Bernadette, is helping her do this research into Cabrini Green. And the idea behind Helen's character is that she is a voyeur, right? She's not a part of this community, but she comes in to document it 
for sort of a like a voyeur's reason like she's kind of she's gonna get something out of that right she's she is interested in helping people but that's not really her main point you know she never talks about activism to sort of turn this around she's only focused on her dissertation bernadette is a is slightly closer to the community because she's black however oh and we should mention who she is she's played by casey lemons casey lemons who's in Sounds of the Sounds Lambs, of the Lambs and, she's and she's a director. Director, yeah. Now. But in this, like she, when Helen is sort of tempting fate by saying Candyman five times into the mirror, she's the one who walks away. Bernadette's like, "There's no way. Like, I'm not. I'm not into this." And she's also kind of uncomfortable with what Helen's doing. So, like you were saying, it's sort of a strange thing to see Candyman then murder her. Yeah. When she she doesn't even she's not even part of the saying Candyman five times into the mirror right. situation. So, yeah. And she's sort of, she's already seeing the problems with Helen's presence in mm-hmm. Cabrini Green. So, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to illustrate your point. But uh, even with those muddied rules, Candyman himself, or I guess itself, because Candyman comes to be multiple things later on, even uh, Tony Todd just absolutely kills it so memorable he, his, oh my voice God, his voice was made for this role i had no idea that yeah. that was coming but he's sort of framed as this seductor in the short story because the short story i guess we should sort of dig into the themes in the short story too yeah. so that is more about being legendary i think it really taps into the pathos that's behind the bloody mary game yes which was definitely definite i had never heard of Candyman, but i had definitely heard of bloody mary that's definitely something that we did you know during sleepovers you go into the bathroom you turn the lights out you say bloody mary yes. three times I think in the mirror yep. she's supposed to appear behind you. So that was definitely something that I was familiar with. And yeah, I did it with my friend Trevor in third grade. R.I.P. Trevor. <laughs> oh my god, that's a joke. Right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so that idea of having legendary status and never—I mean, honestly, like who knows the actual history of Mary Queen of Scots, right? I yeah. mean, who can just sort of you know, list that off the top of your head. But she has this legendary status because it's linked with this horrific ritual that people have bestowed on her. We can talk about the mechanics of horror stories later because it's a super interesting topic. But the thing that brings Helen back eventually to her doom in this housing project is that Candyman has offered her this deal that actually he's offered everybody in the community this deal and we find out in a very dark twist the boy's mother has actually offered up her boy as sacrifice so that she can then be bestowed with his legendary status everyone will always talk about Mm -hmm. this boy who was murdered in a horrific way and so then the mother is sort of put on this pedestal so helen kind of gets drawn into that it's very attractive to her and she gets seduced by Candyman's offer that she will then always be this legendary character who went missing in this housing project. So that seduction comes back really well with the way that Tony Todd performs his character. That voice is haunting and you can't really help but think that it's more of a seduction than sort of a gotcha jump scare monster Mm -hmm. and virginia madsen's eyes she really sells it too so this is a fun fact did you find a fun fact about that online 
No. She was actually hypnotized during the filming of those scenes. Cool. It was kind of cool, but after a while, it sounds like she got really uncomfortable with it. (laughs) She ended up asking not to be put under because I guess there was a certain word that would sort of take her in and out of it. And she said that she would like lose time. Like she would forget complete days of filming, even if she was out of the trance. Hmm. So I don't know. I've never really been a huge believer in hypnotism, but it sounds like she had a pretty creepy experience. There's a video on YouTube about it where she talks about the director sort of putting her in and out. And she was just really uncomfortable with that control that he had over here. So yeah, she's actually hypnotized in those scenes. Okay. I think she, She's a good enough actress to just do that on her own, just to act hypnotized. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that was necessary, but it I adds guess a level of creepy. It right? does, yeah. yeah. And she really does, I guess they succeeded. She really does look hypnotized yeah. by the Kendaman. Yeah. So, <laughs> Kendaman. Yeah. And, and that's another thing. So, by taking the story from Liverpool to Cabrini Green, Chicago, I thought the original movie wouldn't have aged well because the main character is white, even though they're dealing with these very black American-centered issues, and it's been making Candyman black. I thought him hunting a white woman wouldn't have aged well, but to the contrary, her whiteness actually factors into the plot. Like, that's kind of the point. She, like many Chicago residents, uh, used her privilege to shield herself from Mm -hmm. the atrocities that went unnoticed in the community and she was aware of them but she only focused on the legend and once she demystified that legend you know in the bathroom when she meets the gang member who goes by Candyman who's not the real Candyman once she just demystifies Candyman then she stops believing in him Mm -hmm. she stops focusing on the actual crime that's occurring and it's only then it's only when the tradition dies that's when you finally see the real Candyman come after her this is like 50 it's like 50 minutes into the movie Mm -hmm. and Candyman has not showed up yet so that's a real choice that I respect Bernard Rose the director for making he really takes his time I think with a story like this you need to Um, that's also a negative I think the first half it might be a tad slow but once you get to the midway point and Candyman shows up Tony Todd the first time Helen gets hypnotized and then wakes up in Anne Marie's apartment mm-hmm. with the dog head decapitated, that's when the story really gets going. Yeah. And I didn't anticipate that going into the first movie. I didn't know it would be a story where like she gets framed for yeah. the murder. I think that was a, a brilliant choice. Yeah, it gets into another discussion that I read with Richard Newby about how some of Candyman's motivation comes from taking all the normal boundaries that white people sort of are bestowed with in horror films because a lot of you know there is a joke we've made this joke on the podcast too about how like the black character always dies first and so it it's supposed to sort of put her in this position where it's like transposing her into the black experience is the right way to say it but it's like she has not done any of this but she's still being blamed for it that's how he described that situation and i thought that was really interesting because i didn't quite understand the whole idea of Candyman. And like stealing again a black child right was confusing to me i didn't see where the black child abduction came into the plot line at all 
except for the fact that it had happened in the book. And then I sort of understood, well, she's being blamed for all the stuff that she didn't do. Kind of like a lot of people in the community. <laughs> right, well, exactly, exactly. That's sort of what he was saying a little yeah. bit, was it was like putting the only way that a white person will understand the feeling of helplessness is to take this you know, ghoul that nobody else can necessarily see make all of these things happen and then have that turned in on her. Right. And to say, like, this is what some people in this community have experienced. Yeah. Like, do you understand now? Do you understand, like, what you put on us? Same. And I, that's something that I just went over my head. I just didn't Same. get yeah. it. And now I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, I, that's, that's, an interesting conversation to have. Right. It's the only way for white people to understand is to not only simply going to Cabrini Green and taking pictures right. and writing a dissertation. That is not enough yeah. for it to sink in for people. And I think this movie is very much targeted at the pe people in Chicago who can make changes happen, like politicians, city officials, land developers, mm -hmm. uh, real estate agents. Yeah. But you can sit in on a lecture about the crimes and poverty that's happening in Cabrini Green, but the movie very astutely is saying, no, the only w this has been happening for so long that the only way people are going to understand, white people are going to understand, is if you like literally become Candyman himself, which is what hel happens to Helen at the end of the film. Right, and so we can get into Candyman's black, <laughs> black story backstory um freudian slip i guess but honestly black story is appropriate you're right so in the short story we don't really get a lot of background on Candyman. he is a legend that becomes manifest yeah that's and, kind of it right and the similarities are the bees as well yeah bees and honey and the seduction and the legendary status although and, from what i remember in the original story they don't have that whole backstory about the candy man how he was run down by a mob so that's and covered in honey say. oh that's sorry but the similarities is that he's covered in bees right um and has a hook for a hand so like i was i was gonna say about the backstory of Candyman. so this character is built out and endowed with this really interesting history that we don't get from the book at all in the first movie so his name was daniel robitaille and he was a black man who was so his father was, was a slave freed, was freed and then became wealthy and then right and then he came up in quote-unquote high society and he was an incredibly gifted painter and so he was commissioned to do a portrait of a white man's daughter and they fell in love and because of the relationship a white mob lynched he got her pregnant yeah. Okay, that's also a part, right? Yeah. So he got her pregnant. And then Daniel Robitaille was lynched by a an, an extremely violent white mob that not only dragged him behind a carriage, right? Is that... Mm -hmm. They then covered him with honey and sort of dumped a hive of bees on his body. Yeah, and, and they stung him to death. Stung him to and death. right before that, they cut off his arm and jammed in a hook. Yeah, that's, so that's right. So that's that's sort of the origin story that Candyman is endowed with in movie number one. And so we get this really rich, very racialized backstory. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the reason that it's important to give him that very specific 
death that's rooted in American racism is because, like we said before, it's important to see that there is really no white equivalent of the treatment that black people have been subjected to throughout the history of America. So, so this is sort of that role reversal of like everything is taken away from Helen because she wasn't sincere about helping or even learning, to yeah. be honest, her motivation about the was, community. Her motivation was to prove her colleagues wrong right. or to trump them yeah and, yeah with her exactly dissertation because they don't they don't believe the story of candy that candy man is actually real so she has to go back and prove to this white audience instead of them just saying like oh like black history is horrific and violent i believe that i i believe that and i think that really gets to the root of what we we talk about in the second movie is daniel robitaille's story is not just one black man Mm -hmm. and that's something that we can quote coleman domingo's character who says it's not just one one man man, it's the the whole whole damn hive thank you thank you because it's the history of black men being violently again not even murdered but cruelly and unreasonably punished for things that they are completely innocent of that really holds I think the power of the storytelling. And again, we get into that sort of leads us into Coleman Domingo's different kind of motivation to sort of push that legend forward into history. But did you have anything else to say about the background or Helen? Well, yeah, I think that's the magic trick of Virginia Madsen's performance is that she's still likable as a protagonist, even though her motivations aren't the strongest and she's technically an anti-hero in a sense but she is i think very engaging just as an actor taking race out of it just as a, as an actor she's very easy to watch and, and engage with yeah and i think that brings up a really 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 good point about how she is sympathetic to a white audience Right. And I think that opens up the conversation about how very similar to what a lot of Jordan Peele's work says, especially, I mean, we can go back to a one-to-one comparison with Get Out about, you remember that really funny line, I would vote for Obama again uh, uh, if third time, <laughs> third if, I time if I could, yeah. right? Jordan Peele has an incredible ability to see that most people in our contemporary society see things like slavery and keeping you know, black people in chains and beating black people and raping, you know, black women as racist. But that's not the conversation he wants to have. He wants to have a conversation about contemporary racism, which encompasses things like microaggression and comments about, for example, at the auction where the family and family friends are bidding on Daniel's body in Get Out where they talk about, you know, are you, do you work out? Like you look athletic, stuff like that. Those things are racism. Yeah. And so Jordan Peele wants white people or like everybody, I think everybody to recognize that racism isn't gone. We're not in a post-racial society. Comments and those actions are still racist. It just looks different, but we still have to identify those things and sort of root them out as as a society 
Um, and I think that's exactly what they're trying to do by presenting a sympathetic white character who we can connect with. And we can say like, that might be something that I would be interested in doing a dissertation with. But then by adding the twist that that's not helpful to the community who really needs help, that's where we start having conversations about how racism looks different now than it does 200 years ago. Yes. That transitions nicely to the new movie about how sometimes racism is disguised in mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah. And yeah, especially that's what Jordan Peele and Nick DaCosta really nail down is gentrifying communities. You go in, you know, building new buildings and new businesses in principle seems seems like progress. It seems like you're bettering a community. But then once you start to look into it, it's like, no, these communities were cut off from the rest of the city and left to die. So a Whole Foods could come in. You need to track the growth of the community in order to see the roots of racism. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that the episode of the podcast that we listened to is called The Hollywood Reporter Remix, which is super good. And the interview with Yahya, he talks about how he doesn't want to diminish the meaning of violence against black bodies, but he talks about how the root of gentrification ripples out generation by generation. It's a really, I would tell people to go listen to that. But yeah, so let's move into the new movie. Before we do that, the OG movie. So you like it. We've, yes. We've yeah. established that. I, I yeah. really like it. There are a couple missteps. Yeah. I don't think the end was perfect, but... Yeah, it's a little sprawling and kind of like there's a lot of stuff happening, both metaphorically and literal. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the the biggest misstep that I have that I, I read a little bit more about too, which you can kind of Google, is the the last white girl. It's It sort of sets up the whole idea that she's still getting her revenge, and it, it, it completely recenters the movie, I think, back to Helen, which is, in a way, we feel a little bit vindicated because she murders her boyfriend who's a complete ass or her husband i guess ex-husband who's a complete ass but it takes an away an adulterous ass yeah but it does take away from the core of the movie if you just sliced off i think the last scene it would have kept the center a little bit more true to the bigger themes of the conversation but you know this is we can have this it's, conversation yeah. about who it's movies are are made for and the audiences that are assumed are going to be watching these films, which we can get into a little bit later. So I think, I think the very, the very end of that movie is just like, doesn't quite cut it. Well, it, it ties back to how there's a lot of mixed messages with some of the mm -hmm. symbolism going on, because I think I like the ending a lot for what it says about how legends never die. Yeah. Like Helen's. That's like the Sandlot. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a quote directly from the Sandlot, yeah. but I think it's very in theme with what the whole movie is saying is that legends will never die even when people do. Yeah. However, then, you know, you go back to the whole race discussion and yeah, it, legend it's a little it's a little muddied, but I, I, yeah. yeah. The 92 movie really solid. I love it as a cult movie. I think it has some pretty good kills. The the, the yeah. body counts low, which I like. I like it when there's a few good kills as opposed to like a hundred regular kills. Like Halloween, oh, speaking of kills, the movie Halloween Kills just came out. So many people die in that. Like 10 firefighters in the first scene. And it's just, 
noise. It ha there's no real depth to it. You you need to take the time to craft both memorable but also meaningful kills in your movie, and that's what the first movie has. Don't read Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. <laughs> the body count in that, well, the unnecessary body count in that is like 500 deaths. I think high body counts aren't bad on well, it's just, it's principle. It's a little bit of a, like a glorification of yes. like high body counts. I think, which is kind of funny, wasn't that the point in that play? I haven't, I haven't read that, so I don't know. I was making a joke. We can move on. I thought it was funny. I laughed. And I love you okay. so much. This is me supporting... My baby. My jokes. My bad jokes. All right, we can move on. So the new movie, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman 2021, directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta. She is one other feature film to her name, and she's going to direct uh, The Marvels coming up in 2023, a Marvel film. I'm not really sure what it's about. I haven't read the comics, but Disney sweeped her up. She's part of the pack now. Her and Chloe Zhao. The yeah. MCU got him. <laughs> um, I haven't seen the... Everybody's just collapsing. Yeah. The domino theory? Oh, God. Yeah. The domino theory of communism is coming back in the Marvel films. Yeah. Who, who would have thought you'd connect <laughs> Karl Marx to <laughs> Mickey Mouse? But, yeah. <laughs> I bet I could write a dissertation on that. Candyman. So, what a film. I think this is about the closest perfect horror film that I've ever seen. It's so smart. It's so emotional. And we haven't quite gotten into the discussion about genre, the horror genre as sort of a structure yet. But we talked about elevated horror. This is elevated horror. This is how you do horror. It takes the tropes of what a horror is, which was basically developed to sort of personify societal anxiety into monsters and project those psychological ideas into something physical. This asks why a lot of times the outsider is turned into a monster. And not only why, the, the, I think this movie asks not only why, but also what is the consequence of who you choose to project your concern or your fear into. And I think that is literally what Yahya Abdul-Mateen II's character becomes in the very end. It becomes a sort of personification of the fear and what that fear can do. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my like my synopsis. <laughs> That's a very smart, well-spoken synopsis. Yeah, the film garnered a lot of criticism for being so metaphorical and being kind of heavy with its themes. And to that I say, have you seen the first movie? That's the whole point. The sequels, from what I understand, are very much traditional horror films like slashers like mm. where the first one is is tony todd in all three of them? yes yeah okay. where the first one is like fine dining and has something to say number two and number three fall prey to traditional horror tropes sure um and Cash grab a bit yeah and whereas this movie very much brings that like you're saying elevated horror back now I don't love it as much as you do. I've already mentioned how I have a problem with his length. I yeah. think, and I mean, I could have used more yes. in it. I just think that 
yeah, I think that there are some beats that are a little bit too rushed. Well, yes. But overall, I, I, I just think it. I take real issue with the fact that there is no um, development for Anthony's character. That's who Yahya Abdul Mateen plays, uh, in my opinion. So, so you open up the movie, and he's this struggling artist who is looking for inspiration and you get a few conversations a few scenes with him where you kind of gauge his personality and then immediately he goes to cabrini green and when i was watching the movie i'm like wow they're getting right to it i love this not wasting a moment there's Mm -hmm. no fluff but he gets stung by the bee uh, in cabrini green and then immediately starts his transformation and it's like a few scenes later he's already becoming Candyman. And I just feel like there's a middle section sure, missing yeah. from the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know Anthony at all. And Yaya is such a charismatic, thoughtful actor. I mean, he really brought uh, pathos, if that's the right word, to mm-hmm. Dr. Manhattan uh, in the show. Watchmen. Right. Yeah. I thought that the same thing would happen here, but he's not really given an opportunity. I mean, he's he immediately starts to lose his mm-hmm. grip on reality and become Candyman. Yeah, from what I read, I, I agree. I could have used a little more. But from what I read, I think that is sort of there to show his lack of understanding of where he came from and his roots. Yes, yeah. I I agree it could be built out a little bit more. And there's a great reveal later when we find out that he was actually the child in the first movie. So incredible. I didn't even recognize his mom was the same actress from the original. Exactly. Amazing. Yes, hold on. I want to talk about that scene because that's my favorite scene in the movie, probably between both movies. That's my favorite scene Mm -hmm. because... Yeah, I had no idea that that, it that was information coming. drop is so smart for what this movie is trying to say. I think it was that importance of sort of discovering where you're from and your roots and who you are and you know your story and where you came from and how that's been either ripped away from a lot of black people due to the abductions during slavery and not only slavery but sort of the displacement of people and culture as you know. American history moves forward, but it also sort of highlights how he was directed to, he was sort of pushed to discover Cabrini Green by the demands of a white yes. art gallery director. Yeah. So it's sort of, I think that it's supposed to serve two functions, but, but maybe it was just a little bit rushed. Yeah. Right. It's all metaphor and no text. If that, it's all subtext, no text. Sure. And subtext is great. I mean, I think it's handled well in this movie. I just wanted more meat sure. on there. Sure, yeah, yeah. that's I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but more scenes. Come on, <laughs> get some more fluff. Um, yeah, I guess in a more cynical sense, it's saying that, look, after 29 years, nothing has changed. The baby who grew up in Cabrini Green is still facing the effects of coming from this community. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the haunting reality that DaCosta is conveying with her film. So that's a big problem I have with the film. Another thing, you had mentioned the white arts dealer. His character in principle is excellent. Yeah. The execution, poor. We, okay, um, <laughs> I will say that the the dialogue between him and his intern, side piece or intern, intern, whatever, like they're clearly lover, kind of yeah. sexual relationship deal going on. That is so poorly written. I don't understand 
how that got it, it couldn't have been written movie. by DeCoster appeal it probably no. was the studio was probably like put some jokes in here yeah like maybe it was like reshoots uh, yeah I don't know but the so I, again spoilers they're murdered because they just their sort of hubris allows them to stand in front of Anthony's art piece which is a mirror and he calls you or he sort of asks you to dare say Candyman five times in front of his his art piece this that's probably some of the most satisfying sort of slasher moments when yes. they're murdered by this unseen force which is really really disgusting that, that's and creepy a, that's a change that the new movie makes so you only yeah. you only see Candyman through reflections yeah that is until the end Ooh, I'm honestly I'm like getting creeped yes. out because I'm remembering some of the scenes yeah so every kill in the movie the people are killed by this invisible force and then the camera will pan to a mirror and that's where you see Candyman out of focus sometimes. Beautiful direction. So it, it's good. very it's, it's not so creepy. It's not your standard way of shooting a slasher. Yeah. Uh, but in the end of the film, then you see Candyman uh, come out. Uh, but yeah. Right, which is which is like a key moment. But yeah, the dialogue between the gallery host his name is Clive. Which I noted, which is like Clive Barker. I think nice that was a nod. very clear nod, yeah. right, to the original author. So, uh, I think I think at one point, like they're getting ready to leave. Oh no, no, no! It's right before they say Candyman five yes. times in the mirror, and he goes, "At least not before we fuck." <laughs> just, it's like, a bad line of dialogue, and the how it was directed delivery. was not yeah, correct. So and then when the intern gets her throat slashed. And he's trying to unbuckle himself from her because they, you know, attach their buckles together. He's like, must go faster, must go faster. Yeah. Citing Jurassic Park. I'm like, what are we doing here? This yeah, is it was like very strange. the cringiest reference I've ever seen. So his character, not great. Okay, yeah. that's the second big problem I have. The third and final problem I have is the rushed ending. So Coleman Domingo's character, William Burke, kidnaps Brianna and then puts her in front. Who's Anthony's? Yes, girlfriend. Uh, partner, yeah. Yeah. And then puts her in front of Anthony, and, and he has this big exposition dump speech, yeah. and his character mannerisms change drastically. It's mm -hmm. like, is this the same guy? And then Anthony immediately becomes Candyman, not dead yet, and gets killed by a cop, which I, I, I get what they're going for. It's like a black man can't be in a neighborhood with a hook without getting immediately shot. Like, I, I get that. But can't, can't do anything. Uh, yes. There's no freedom. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. But it thematically and pacing-wise, it's just too quick. And then Brianna summons him, and you think you're like, oh, shit, here he comes. And that moment when she says his name five times in the mirror, awesome. And the yeah. score by... Oh, the score has been stuck in my head for, like, an entire week. Yeah, the score is done by Robert Aki Avery Lowe, I'm not familiar with his work, but it, it's a great, it's so uh, what's the word, interpolation of the first score is that <laughs> it's it's emulating it, but it's not copying it exactly. It's taking the spirit of it, yeah. if you could say. And kind of. Did you say interpretation? Interpolating. Or? I learned that through TikTok. I don't think I knew that word. That's, yeah, it's what like a lot of musical artists do with songs. It's like you'll take a beat or you're, you'll take a melody. Like to sample something? It's it's a form of sampling. Huh. It's, okay. not, it's not taking the exact beat. It's like rewriting it or huh. rearranging okay. or writing new lyrics on top of an existing beat. Well, TikTok, hello. Shout out to... <laughs> we don't have to talk about TikTok here. <laughs> um, but yeah, the score... 
by Lowe is haunting, but then he comes out, he kills three cops, and then it ends. And you're like, wait a second. But it, it ends so abruptly that in the theater, people were like, whoa. And some people laughed because it's just watching movies, you don't ex you expect pacing to go to a certain point. You don't expect abrupt cuts and stoppages, so maybe especially the, in your third act. So maybe the transformation wasn't quite complete. And that's maybe where some people were a little confused about the trajectory of the character. I, I think in a more simplistic aspect, I just think it was the scenes were too short. I that that's basically it okay so those are my three problems with it only three but they are big glaring problems that really bring the film down for me by a whole star because this would be a four star movie it it is elevated horror it, like it, it it sits on the highest seats along with get out and midsummer and the invisible man as you know movies of the past 10 years that are taking horror and using the genre to talk about these important, intense. sensitive, yeah. intense topics that people should be talking about. I know you have a couple other examples of movies that have done it in the past. Started, sorry to take your thunder. No, But no, no. I think that this is so close to greatness that it's such... A, it feels like a simple fix to have more scenes, to have more meat on your movie. Sure. I'm just, I'm supremely disappointed in that aspect about it. But spoiler alert, this would be a perfect horror if not for those three problems. So three out of four stars. I'm, I'm putting my review in early. Oh, I was going to say, are we wrapping up the episode? No. Well, I'm not done. Well, we should, done. but you're editing. I'm not done. You're editing this. No, I, no, I have so much more stuff to talk about. And well, one of the things I wanted to talk about since we are touching on genre, this specifically, I had never heard of black horror or or horror noir. And mm. I read a lot about how this is specifically that. It's not only elevated horror, it's horror noir or black horror. And something that I really wanted to talk about because I was so challenged by this piece, it completely blew open this conversation in my mind about who movies are made for. And I think that's where I see the first movie stumble. And it's not necessarily something that I identified the first time I watched it because I had a lot of questions, but after reading, I think some of the problems are still there for me. And I think it's because it was made by a white director and it was made for a white audience. And that's where the second movie becomes a four out of four stars for me. This is a movie that was created by a black team. And I think the key difference is that it was made for a black audience. And that's something that I didn't even, I mean, that concept just was not in my head when questions started coming up for me about like what I was uncomfortable with or what I didn't understand. And so then when we listened to that episode of the Hollywood Reporter Remix podcast, the conversation between Rebecca Sun and Richard Newby really started making me think about that more. It's like, maybe people don't understand it and maybe people don't like it as much because the people who mostly review 
movies are bringing a white male perspective to the table. I mean, this is like racist in itself where I've never given a second thought to how movies are marketed toward the people who are assumed to be the audience because like I am that audience like I am that white audience that most movies are marketed toward so that was a really humbling experience for me and I think that was that's also really important to keep in mind going forward like this movie taught me a lot but it's not necessarily like who the movie's made for and I think that's why I got so much out of it and, and I don't know, I guess it just blew my mind that like every single other movie I've ever seen in my entire life has not hit me like this movie hit me. My advice for anyone walking into this movie is just, I think like be really humble. And if you have questions, like don't necessarily think of that. And I'm not saying against this against you because I, I still have the issue with like maybe being a little too short and yeah. some dialogue not being great. But I would say before saying that you don't like it, do a lot more research and understand like where that uncomfortableness is coming from. Yeah, I think you can see that with the reviews on like Rotten Tomatoes, the aggregate. Once you start reading a lot of reviews, you like I've mentioned before, some people were saying like, oh, it's confusing. The themes were too on its head. And again, that's what that's the point. Mm -hmm. it, Candyman is a personified theme. Yeah. He is a legend. That's the whole damn thing. Well, and we can talk about that too, about how I really did not understand Coleman Domingo's decision to create an unwilling martyr out of Anthony. Like that was something that made me like, like, wait a second, what? Like, it's too quick because it's like a few lines of dialogue. And yeah, a lot of people were, some people were even laughing in the theater I was with because his monologue during that scene is just so wild and, and not deftly delivered in a way that can be understandable upon yeah, first which viewing. is a shame because like I kind of flagged this earlier that we, we should talk about this about how Anthony is or I guess his transformation into Candyman he's liberated out of the realm of legend as soon as I think this is kind of how I've, after reading a bunch of stuff on it, this is how I've kind of come to interpret it, is that he's liberated out of the realm of legend by Brianna summoning him to protect her. And we don't see Candyman in a mirror after she escapes the cop car. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is the key change because Coleman Domingo's character, He's making the decision to release Candyman, who really is the projection of white fear onto black men, mm -hmm. into this sort of very satisfying vindicator. And it's scary because, sure, he's killing people in a pretty horrific way, but in the same way that the first movie is saying that's the only way that white people can experience this fear. That's exactly what, that's the punishment that he brings down upon the white cops who have A, murdered him for no reason. He's on the floor when they shoot him. Um, I guess trigger warning for that uh, imagery if you go into that um, scene, but also are threatening Brianna. They're threatening to say that, you know, she's, pushing back at them or like she deserved to be arrested 
when all she was doing was basically letting Anthony die in her arms. Yes. So, again, that could have been explained a little bit more. Yes. Because that's really unclear when when Burke is, like, sawing Anthony's hand off. That's, like, pretty intense. Yeah. And it doesn't quite make the transition and, like, make those connections between why he's kind of seduced Anthony almost in the same way that Tony Todd has seduced Helen in the first film. He sort of seduced him to into this, like, role. But I still think, again, after a lot of research into people who are way smarter than me and actually have, you know, lived experience of some of this stuff... That's where I, it just like really blew my mind. That's, it's just incredibly well mm-hmm. thought out. Yes. The other thing that I wanted to talk about too is how, I know, this is kind of, I'm like, I don't know, are you, are you done? I have, I wanted to talk about the um, scene with his mom and then I wanted to okay. wrap up. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so I guess if I'll go first. <laughs> the, the thing that I came to think about as well is the marketing campaign on this because I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with it, especially if you live in LA, because this was all over the place. Candyman's iconic coat and he's facing away from the camera and has his hook in the air. And on his back, it says, say it. Mm -hmm. And so obviously that's intense because it's sort of, it's challenging the viewer, you know, to summon this Candyman. But the thing that I started thinking about too, and this might just be like me being stupid, but I kind of think that that's a challenge to people who don't believe that their actions are racist. Okay. Because, like, for example, the gallery host and his intern, they think it's super dumb. Like, it's stupid. They have the confidence that this isn't real. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that they take very seriously the violence and the racism of the past. And I don't think that they take, like... For example, the gallery host is the guy who tells Anthony that his art isn't black enough, basically. Like, even as a black person, he's like, your art isn't black enough. Like, I want to see, like, go to this housing project and, like, this is what I define as the black experience. So you should then reflect that, even though Anthony is just reflecting his own life experience. So, like, those are the people who are able to, like, say in the mirror candy man candy man candy man candy man. <laughs> i don't want to say it all yeah um and those are the people who again they don't recognize their actions as racist and so candy man comes and murders them and i feel like that's sort of a reimagination of this test like you need to put your actions and your words to to the test and i think makes that metaphor real by placing people in front of that mirror and asking kind of like, again, put sort of putting yourself at the feet of Candyman, who really becomes a religious icon by the end. He's sort of sacrificed and becomes this religious god. I just think that that's indicative of what the creators of this movie are asking people to do. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. I think that's definitely your argument is sound for sure. And even at the end of the new film, it cuts off with Tony Todd saying, tell everyone, like keep this story alive, perpetuate the idea that there are racist microaggressions. Everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah, I think like that's the idea behind the marketing campaign. Yep. That's, I, I that makes think perfect that's brilliant. Sense. Yeah. Well, wanted to close with, we had brought up that scene with Anthony and his mom and how that completely knocked us off 
our feet. So this was something that was not in the advertising at all. So Vanessa Williams was in the trailer for a brief bit, but I did not connect that she was the same person in the original film because 30 years have passed. She looks a little differently, still looks great, but I just didn't make that connection. So that revelation I think is done so well because they peppered in in the first act of the film that there's this legend where the baby gets taken by Candyman, by Helen, incorrectly attributed to Helen when it was really Candyman who took him. And that scene's just so powerful. It's the best scene in the film. Vanessa Williams is only in it once, she hasn't done a lot, but it's one scene, one monologue, completely kills it. And that connection really, I guess, connects the first film so much. And I love how it's expanded because you can tell he, after so many years, he's being brought back to Cabrini Green, going to become the new Candyman. And that line earlier that Coleman Domingo gives, I think adding the to the lore of Candyman, making Candyman not just one person, but this idea that every new generation has a Candyman because this problem continues throughout history, I think is so smart. So both those additions are so great. Th that scene is just so well shot, so well directed. I'm, I'm in awe of Vanessa Williams. I, I wish there was was like best cameo Oscars, you know, because yeah. you have best supporting, but I wish best cameo was a thing because they kind of have that in television with best guest actor. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, they have, you know, best actor, best supporting actor, but also guest actor who's like only in for an episode or something like that. I think they could do something like, like that with the Oscars. I don't know. It would be fun. I think it would be really um, fun. Yeah. A movie like this would never get nominated just because horror films don't get that's nominated. So, that's so frustrating. Right. That's but, so stupid. Yeah. Get Out is really the only film that horror film that's really been nominated at the Oscars, but... Yeah, I just I just want to shout out that scene and Vanessa Williams because I'm in awe of her in that sequence. I, I think connecting it to that film in that way. The first film is essentially a setup and the second film is a payoff. It, it's yeah. very satisfying. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, we can wrap up. We've both kind of shared our feelings. I think for what it is, the short story is a four out of four for me. It got me really thinking about that legendary status what would you do to not be forgotten and then the first movie i think just stumbles in a couple ways so i do three out of four on that the second movie four to four no question i'm really excited to dive into this again and you mentioned that there were a couple other movies that i view in this echelon of black horror or horror noir and we actually just watched the People Under the Stairs with our mm. friends Jess and David. Shout out to them for having us over right before Halloween. And that movie came out a year before the first Candyman and deals with a lot of questions about gentrification. It's super fun. It's a little bit more camp horror. Yeah. But asks a lot of the same questions and is... Honestly, I'd never heard of it before yeah. we watched it with them. It was really fun. So I would say go check out that movie if you want to have sort of a, a precursor to a lot of these discussions. Yeah, agreed. And for my rating, it's threes across the board, baby. Three, gotcha. three, three. Yeah, the, the short story is good, but it's succinctness prevents it from being anything higher than a three. The original movie is solid, very fun, very meditative. I love meditative films so uh, it has some problems it's a three and then the 2021 film 
what an art piece. So effective, so thrilling. It has a lot of great choices in it, but some glaring missteps. So, three. Well, we've reached the end, but remember, legends never die. Please follow and write a review if you want to. Remember, with movies coming back in theaters, everyone be safe out there. Please get vaccinated. Yes. Wear your masks. Uh, yes, yeah. Everyone everyone be safer on the holidays. We'll be back next week with our coverage on Dune with special guest Tim. Can't wait for that. More Dune. Woo! <laughs> Praise Shahilud. Moabdib. Yeah. <laughs> and wow, you've got a lot of editing ahead of you, Missy. That's, I mean, we've had longer episodes. That's true. <laughs> uh, but you only have a few days to do it. That's fine. A peek behind the curtain. <laughs> We're running behind schedule. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.